This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, lonely at the podcast table with only one co-host, Liel Leibowitz. How are you, Liel? Lonely at the top. No competitors. I was thinking of the absence of Stephanie Butnick, but also it's lonely up here on the top of Podcast Everest. It's it's hard to be so good at what you do. <laughs> I bet this is, is this, is this what Steve Martin feels like every day? <laughs> this week, Liel speaks with world-renowned pianist Simona Dinnerstein. And also we have a sneak peek into a new show by Tablet Studios. It's called Radioactive, and it's about the legendary anti-Semitic priest, Father Charles Coughlin. We make it sound like a good, the legendary, <laughs> the unparalleled anti-Semitic priest, Father Charles Coughlin. He took radio <laughs> anti-Semitism to new heights in the 1930s. A man took to the radio to say nasty things about Jews. What happened next will surprise you. <laughs> I mean, he like could fill stadiums. He he had tens of thousands of people listening to a show. They'd come out for him and he would say awful things about Jews. And it was, you know, there's money in that as he showed. Liel also has an interview with the show's host and producer, Andrew Lapin. I had nothing to do with this production of Tablet Studios and I am so excited for it as a listener, as a fan. It was too rich for your blood. It was too much anti-Semitism. <laughs> um, Liel, you know, there's so much good news the Jews to get to, but before we get to it, can you tell us about your road trip tomorrow? So look, I take my kids' education very seriously. Uh, and, <laughs> and the other day, one of them came back home and she was humming a tune. And I was like, what was that? And she was like, Florida? I was like, that's it. Pack your bags. We're going to see the Rolling Stones in Pittsburgh. <laughs> you need <laughs> you need some corrective measure. So I wrote this very lovely note to the kids' teachers. A dear, you know, Mora so-and-so, uh, Hudson and Lily will be missing school <laughs> for the next two days because they have Hebrew school with uh, Rabbi Keith and Rabbi Mick and also Mora Ronnie Wood. And we're basically just driving to Pittsburgh to hang with the Rolling Stones and have a great old time. You went to Pittsburgh to write an amazing book about the Jewish community. And I'm just going to hang with the Rolling Stones. But you are going to stop in at Amazing Books and Records with my homie, oh, Eric Ackland, right? Cannot wait. What's so great about the fact that you're yanking the two kids from school for two more days to take them to Pittsburgh to see the Rolling Stones and meet Eric Ackland is that, of course, being that they go to Jewish day school and it's the month of, you know, September, October, November, they haven't been in school. It's the month of Tishrei. It's right. the month of Tishrei. I was like, kids, it's it's Chi'i Atzeret and Asiri Atzeret. You're going for two more days with Hashem. Yom HaWatz, that's a festival to celebrate the memory of oh. Charlie Watts, of blessed memory. All I have to say is sometimes you get what you need, kids. And I hope it's also what they want. That's the thing. It's not. They're like, oh, that's cool. I guess it's better than school. I was like, <laughs> it's the rolling. What is wrong with you? Like if someone said this to me when I was your age, I would flip the flippity out. And they're like, I Googled them, dad. They're older than grandma and grandpa. <laughs> they're like, it's not <laughs> Olivia Rodrigo, but I guess that's okay. That's kind of how it's rolling in my family is there's a lot of affinity for Olivia Rodrigo. This morning, I was in my friend Andy Boone's car. Andy Boone, of course, has been a Gentile of the Week. He talked about Quakerism and curling with us. And we have a really nice ritual that's been going on since May where we uh, we drive out to a lake in rural Connecticut and we go for a one-mile swim. And for this, I bought a wetsuit. We haven't even talked about my wetsuit purchase, which was the big pandemic purchase for me. A wetsuit is the sport life equivalent of a seersucker suit. It is so incredibly, beautifully gentilic. I love that you own one. <laughs> it's, it's almost corduroy, right. except it's not because, you know, it's plasticine, rubberized latex or whatever. It should but, all come with a cross. It basically should just be like, you know. <laughs> it just, they should just dab a little, some ashes on my forehead when I put it on. But we were talking in the car this morning about, I was saying, 
there's so many areas in which I feel like, you know, I've been a good dad and my children have, whatever could have rubbed off from me onto them has, they're going to be their own people, but at least I've tried, you know, I've tried to give them good skeptical politics and I've tried to give them, they, they like books, but they're not snooty about it. And they're, they're like exactly where I want them to be in so many ways. And then also their own people in so many ways. But on musical education, I feel like I've given them almost nothing because we have a very loud house and it's just not workable to put records on or, or stream music or whatever. It's, it's not workable to have music playing in the house over seven people and two dogs. And so people listen to music almost exclusively privately in the car where they commandeer the station and put on just top 40 or people are listening privately with their headphones. I was just like, you know, when I was growing up, my dad put on records. I heard his Motown. I heard his Almond Brothers. I heard like, and I feel like I've given my kids nothing musically, which is one reason that I'm so like supercharged about your, that you're actually loading them into the car and taking them to a rock concert is it really gets at what I think I should have been doing. No, but, but hold on. But I failed in this way too. I literally put on records, not, you know, CDs or Sonos or Spotify, like records. I sit them down in the living room and I put on vinyl, like to play everything you just mentioned, the Motown, the Allman Brothers. It doesn't connect in quite the same way. I think because music has become so incredibly prevalent that they're assaulted by it everywhere they go. And the, the moment of sitting down in the living room and listening to the music right. isn't sacred for them the way it was for me. For me, as soon as the music came on, time stopped, you know, right. space collapsed. It's like, I am now listening to this. For them, it's like, oh, so it's like a commercial or like the thing that I hear when I'm in the taxi or the thing that just plays as I walk in the street. Like it's, to them, it's background noise. And they're like, oh, whatever. It's like nice. I, I know this tune, but they don't plug into it in the same way. And it really bothers me. It probably should bother us less. Although if it did, we wouldn't be able to host another weekly episode of grumpy old men complaining Correct. about the decline of the universe. That's right. <laughs> the people who are saying, please bring Stephanie Butnick back. That's right. Please. <laughs> and, and only Stephanie Butnick. By, By the, the way, listeners, God. she's, uh, it's, it's close. The moment is, close. is almost at hand. Baby Edith is supremely adorable. And we are very happy to have her too co-host the show. It's going to be Mark and Liel and Stephanie and Edith very soon. Basically, it's Survivor and one of us is going to get thrown off the island and it's not going to be Edith. It's never going to be Edith. News of the Jews N-O-T-J News of the Jews uh-huh. <laughs> News of the Jews. Uh, Liel, what's going on in the world of the Jews this week? In the UK, a country that, you know, I could tolerate. It's not Belgium, but it's not Montana. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Daniel Donskoy, who I guess if you watch The Crown, you would recognize as the guy who played Princess Diana's muscular lover, Captain lover. Charles Hewitt Fitbit Thirlby Stonesman. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> whatever his name is. I like to think of him as her adulterer, as the man who cuckolded Prince Charles on the crown. Oh my, Prince Charles. Um, <laughs> he is about to become, get this, the first Jew ever to host the German Oscars, which, by the way, is such a dubious uh, kind of <laughs> distinction, but I still love it. It's just Oscar spelled with a K. They're not even movie awards. It's, it's just Das Oscar. Das Oscar. So he gave an interview to The Hollywood Reporter and his opening quote is priceless. In London, he says, people would say, are you South African? Yes. Danish? 
Yes, I always say yes. I'm anything you want me to be, says the 31-year-old actor who was born in Moscow and raised in Germany, Israel, and the UK. I've been lucky, he says, that people can't pigeonhole me. It lets me be everything. If I only took roles based on my identity, I'd never get work. How many jobs are there for a Russian, German, Jewish, British, Israeli? Fair point. <laughs> and so now you're hosting Das Oscars. I'm always charmed when I read about other countries' movie awards. Like, you know, the, you know he won um, a, a doobie, the Canadian Oscar. He won a, a trilby, doobie. the British Oscar. And it's like, <laughs> how big is your film industry? He won, he many- won uh, Sorry. <laughs> the Sorries. I'm very sorry I won. What are the categories in the German Oscars? I think it's a pretty short show. I think it's like best video short in which, you know, someone yells Nazi dominatrix language at, you know, a wimpy man. Best attempt to take over the world. <laughs> best attempt to Goes take over the world. To- I'm always reminded of the the great Robin Williams line where he says he was interviewed on German TV by some someone who said, um, yeah, so... um." You know, why is it that the Germans are just not as funny as the Jews? <laughs> well, just like, I don't know. Do you think maybe you killed all the funny people? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> like, like, I just think the German entertainment industry, I mean, they write moody novels, but are there are there lots of good movies coming out of Germany every year? I don't know. They're, we're getting it mail from film dweebs saying, oh my God, it's amazing. Best comedy this year again goes to The Pianist, <laughs> which is the most entertaining movie ever made. <laughs> It's a German language. Best documentary about Frau Angela Merkel's life this year. The nine nominees are... Best work of fiction goes to Shoah by Claude Lanzmann about some things that we totally didn't do. (laughs) Speaking of the Germans, there is a, a beautiful soccer stadium in Berlin. It was built, you know, in 1936. Never mind by whom. A lot of architecture going on at that time. A lot of construction going on in Berlin in the mid-30s. Yes, A bunch, right. And this week, Israel's champions, Maccabi Haifa, played in that stadium. You would not believe what happened next. Do you want to read from thetimesofisrael.com? Yes, I would love to. Union Berlin apologized Friday after fans hurled anti-Semitic insults at visiting supporters of Israeli champions Maccabi no, Haifa. No, not in the, the 1936 <laughs> Bild Stadium in Berlin. <laughs> the first club from Israel to play at the Nazi-era Olympic Stadium. This, no, <laughs> this behavior is shameful and intolerable said Union President Dirk Ziegler. We apologize to those affected. We will never, ever tolerate discrimination in our ranks. It is important to remain vigilant and to work tirelessly against it because work makes you free and we will be free of this. <laughs> we will be free of all the anti-Semitism very quickly. In your American baseball, you have designated hitters. We have designated Hitlers, yeah. So basically, the Israeli soccer players go over there. And of course, they you know suffer this anti-Semitic abuse at the hands of the German fans. But the best, the best line in that whole article comes from Israeli club president Yaakov Shahar. Yaakov Shahar says, The very fact that we are playing as equals to our hosts in Germany says everything. It means we won. We will also host them. And if possible, we will host them at Yad Vashem. <laughs> <laughs> the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem so that they can see and learn about their past. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking like, why why stop there? <laughs> like, host them at, you know, a friendly match on neutral territory at the Anne Frank House. Correct. Host them at the Holocaust Museum in Washington. It's a bit <laughs> tight in, in the attic, but we can fit 22 <laughs> men there in a, in a soccer ball. <laughs> I just love that his response is like, oh yeah, you're going to host us in your in your Hitler stadium? We're, we're going to host you at the Holocaust Museum? <laughs> it's just amazing. Oh. <laughs> Oh my God, I totally... You open up a can of worms. 
Germans. But that's not even the best news of the Jews story this week. The best is, you know, those of us who are keep kosher and those of us who are vegetarians have been really into the uh, the war, as it were, between Beyond and Impossible, the two companies at the cutting edge of fake meat. Are you a, a partisan of this war? Do you have do you have a team that you fight for? I don't think anything has come as close to real meatiness as the Impossible Burger. And I will actually pull into uh, the drive-thru at with that. Burger yeah. King sometimes and pick up, pick up an Impossible Whopper. Same here. Now, the next frontier, of course, having pretty much mastered Impossible Beef, having made beeves submit to Kashras, is the Impossible pork. But here's the bad news. So according to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency this week in their article, but it's it's been all over the Jewosphere, the Orthodox Union will not give a heksher, will not certify as kosher impossible pork. And it's basically because it's just, it just seems wrong to them. Like it's just too porky. And they apparently have a history of occasionally just withholding certification, even for food that halakhically meets their criteria. So this is from the JTA's article. The OU has held back certification for reasons other than food preparation before. In 2013, it required a Manhattan restaurant to change its name from Jezebel, the name of a biblical <laughs> figure associated with immorality, to retain its kosher certification. But the organization certifies other products that might seem to conflict with Jewish dietary law, explaining on its website that, quote, a fish sauce may display a picture of a non-kosher fish. The OU may appear on artificial crab or pork or there may be a recipe for a non-kosher food item on the label. It even certifies other products that aim to replicate the pork experience, such as Trader Joe's spicy porkless plant-based snack rinds. But ultimately, agency officials decided that a product called pork just wouldn't fly, said OU Kashrus Führer Menachem Ginak. Robert Ginak. Who's been doing that job for decades. Like when I was the Hartford Current in 2000, Menachem Ginak was the guy. He's the absolute greatest. And let me tell you, I know it's not popular, but I kind of dig this decision. I kind of think it's the right decision. Wait, wait. Trader Joe's spicely porkless plant-based fake pork snack rinds can be kosher certified, but not impossible pork? Right. Now we're going to become, you know, like the Zugot period in the Talmud of, of two great rabbis like Shammai yeah. and Hillel arguing. Preach it, Shammai. Why are you with Ganak oh, on this? I'm totally the Hillel in that relationship. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, you would notice that it says spicy pork less plant-based snack rinds. In this case, it is designated as pork. Not the absence of pork, but the presence of pork. Ah, but but Hillel, I'm 20 farthings ahead of you on this because <laughs> what is this product but impossible pork, i.e. it can't be pork. It's literally impossible for it to be pork. That strikes me as even less porky than porkless plant-based rinds. This leads us, I think, into into kind of a larger a larger field of disposition. Yes. So look, uh, having not only gone kosher, but really making a real effort to think about what I eat and and significantly reduce my meat consumption, which I used to eat a lot of meat, and and I really wanted to change that because you know I don't think it's good. I don't think it's good for you. I don't think it's good for the world. I just think it needs to change, and so. Thinking about this, it really started bothering me how so much of the meatless experience was predicated on replicating meatiness. It's like, you know what? Like, why not just so be like, oh, it's just like bacon or just like steak? Like, no, I actually am very happy with eating mushrooms or a tomato or an eggplant. Like, let's actually double down on the inherent deliciousness of like vegetables, which are lovely without having to kind of drill into this gross world like, oh, look, more pork. I kind of get why that would bother Rabbi Ganek. Well, first of all, 
I completely noticed how you kind of changed the subject there, but I'll I'll let you slide away from the. No, but but it's, to me, it's part of the same kind of universe, you know. Like, no, I don't want to eat pork or anything that's pork-like. The rest of the Oppenheimer family is completely with you there. They're like the reason they. So Sid makes these terrific black bean cakes, which are you know they're burgers, but they're of black beans, but they don't they taste like black beans with a lot of spices. They don't taste like meat. They're a different thing, and I've suggested various times, you know that I might pick up some impossible burgers or whatever. And nobody's into it because their answer is like, we actually don't want meat. That's and we right. don't want fake meat either. Like we're getting away from meat. I, of course, having many years of juicy, you know, Wendy's triples behind me, crave the meat, the real thing. But I hear what you're saying. I do hear what you're saying. I just, I don't know. I feel like let the people have their, I mean, impossible worked so hard to create fake pork. To mix, just, just to write enzymes together to give us let- that porky experience. Friends, Tablet Studios, the big umbrella production company under which we now exist, under the shade of whose umbrella we now make Unorthodox, Tablet Studios has been working on a new show called Radioactive about radio priest and renowned anti-Semite Father Charles Coughlin back from the pre-World War II era. That show is now available on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast, and we want you to listen. And to whet your appetite, we bring you a discussion between Liel and the show's host, Andrew Lapin, as well as a little sneak peek of the show, which, as I say, can now drop sweetly into your podcast feed. Here's Liel with the show's host, Andrew Lapin. J. Crew, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to a new show. We have been very excited here in Tablet Studios uh, that brings you this year podcast to work on for the last couple of months. It is a story of a bigot and a con man who, using a brand new and little understood medium, spread hate and fear to rise way, way too close to very real political power. In other words, something that could never happen in America today. But it is a true story. It is the story of how political talk radio in America got born. It's a story of how our politics got modern. It's a cautionary tale that is every bit as resonant today as it was back in the 1930s. And it is my pleasure to introduce you to the person who made it all happen. Hello, Andrew Lapin. Hello. So good to be here. So before we uh, get to, to who you are and whose story we're telling in this amazing podcast, I want to take you... I want to take you back to your childhood. So you grew up in, in the beautiful city of Detroit, Michigan. And yet, walking around town, there was one building, right, that sort of creeped you out as a kid, this really large, ominous church. That's correct. I grew up just outside of Detroit in a lovely, very Jewy suburb called Huntington Woods, Michigan, and just about a mile or so from my house on this very prominent intersection was a massive church called the Shrine of the Little Flower. This church always caught my attention because it was so big. It it rises about 100 feet in the air. It's got this huge, ostentatious carving of Jesus on the cross in limestone overlooking Woodward Avenue, this huge avenue in, in the Detroit area. And I was always sort of fascinated by this church because I came to learn through my parents' generation of Detroit Jews that this church sort of had 
another name that was whispered, and that was the Shrine of the Little Fascist. Uh, because this church was built with money that was earned from a radio show that its priest named Father Charles Coughlin hosted during the Great Depression. Now, Father Coughlin, who may not be a household name today, but back in the 1930s was perhaps the most popular celebrity in America. I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say the man who invented talk radio. He is the subject of this amazing new show that you are hosting called Radioactive. Tell us a little bit about the unlikely rise and spectacular fall of this very dangerous man. Father Coughlin was born in Canada. He was an immigrant to the U.S. He came to Detroit in the 1920s during a time of, of great economic prosperity for the Motor City. And he very quickly built up a name for himself as a young, ambitious kind of hotshot priest with a gift for speech. He could really command a crowd. And so there was a brand new technology in America at the time called the radio. Which was literally just, just introduced, you know, a few years before. Right? No, one, no one really knew what to do with this thing yet. Exactly. Literally just a few years before, nobody, nobody knew the kind of power it could hold. And suddenly, one in every three households in America had one in their living rooms. And Father Coughlin really kind of seized on this opportunity to grow his audience far, far beyond the scope of a suburban parish in the Midwest and really reached tens of millions of listeners through a weekly radio show that aired for a total of 14 years. Now, I know from listening to your podcast that when he first got on the air, some people were scandalized, right? The idea that a priest would go on the radio, you know, not in a, not in a church, not in an intimate setting, talking to his parish, to his flock, but just to the airwaves. That was a bit hard to take. Tell us, what did he say? What made him so popular? Yes, this was really unprecedented, right? Religion on, on the radio, was like, it was like God being beamed directly into your homes. And it was kind of seen as almost like a sideshow, like he was a carnival barker, but he was really, really ahead of his time. He, he realized that religion on the radio could be very compelling. And at first, that's really all he was doing. He was using the show to teach about the Bible, to reach children. And that was, that was the tone that he was setting for the first few years. And also, of course, asking people to, to send him money. But then the content of his radio show shifts dramatically after this key event that happens, which is the, the start of the Great Depression. And let me guess uh, who Father Coughlin blames for the economic catastrophe. <laughs> yes, he, he, if you listen to the show, he blames the communists. Of course, those are, those are his number one enemies. But then who is lurking uh, behind the communists and pulling the strings? Well, often he believes it, it is the Jews or, or, or the atheistic secular Jews, the sort that you know he does not understand, the sort of Jews who don't accept Jesus Christ as their savior, um, the, sort, the sort of Jews who are running rampant across Europe. And, and, oh, those uh, Jews, yes, the yes. Jews that don't accept Jesus. Now, uh, <laughs> we, we laugh here, but, but things for a while took a very dark turn. On the podcast, you know, you've done a lot of, of historical research and, and you dig up some of these speeches from the archives and, and listeners would be able to hear for themselves. This is really scary stuff. And, you know, all the more scarier because with the benefit of historical hindsight, you understand that as these speeches are being given, that's also the exact time that, you know, Hitler and the Nazis are rising to power in Germany. So tell us a little bit about this dark trajectory of Father Coughlin, who I know was, was a Hitler fan and a friend of Mussolini's. Uh, tell us a little bit about his rise to power. Other than a, a celebrity, he was also pretty influential politically, right? 
Yes, it was really striking. Cogwin made this early decision that he really wanted to get involved in politics way beyond the scope of what you would expect from a Catholic priest who would normally just be taking direct orders from their superiors and trying not to ruffle any feathers. Uh, Coughlin went in the exact opposite direction. He attracted tons of attention. He went on congressional hearings. He endorsed candidates for public office and attacked other candidates for public office. And his brand of politics was very much this kind of right-wing populism, leaning very hard into fascism, you know, trying to be this this man of the people of the of the blue collar Americans. And his his influence, you know, grows so much that he is endorsing FDR in 1932. He then very quickly turns on FDR, decides he's in the pocket of, of the communists and instead puts together his own political party to try to challenge the president for this ultimate source of, of power. Because in the mid 1930s, he does indeed have enough followers where he could conceivably become this major political force. This is what is really striking to a lot of people is he's doing all of this as he is, you know, week by week, kind of descending ever more into really dangerous fascist rhetoric, code words that we recognize today as anti-Semitic. And he is putting out a, a national newspaper, which ironically he calls social justice. This paper is full of reports of all the wonderful things that Hitler and Mussolini are, are up to in Europe and talking about all the secret plots of the Jews to come in and take over America. And so he is very much cultivating a kind of rabid, intense follower who believes that that he is speaking the way of, of the true American and that everyone else is their enemy. Now, in a minute, we're going to hear a snippet from the show, which which is a, a multi-part sort of exploration of the story of Father Charles Coughlin's rise and fall and of his times. And, and the podcast is fascinating because in addition to telling the story and weaving in really, you know, terrifying and fascinating snippets of Father Coughlin's own speeches, you also interview, you know, pundits, historians, radio personalities, really a, a, an amazing array of people who help tell the story so well. But, but I want to ask you one last question. So you're working, as I said in the introduction, you're working on this show about basically a con man, a self-centered bigot who used a new medium to rise to great political power and spread hate and discord around the American body politic. How much, if at all, does our present chaotic political condition influence you as, as you sit down to think about this topic? Well, I think it's absolutely fair to say that the present day is what rekindled my interest in Father Coughlin. I first began work on this project independently in 2017, which was a time when a lot of people were suddenly rediscovering the word demagogue and talking about, could we have a demagogue in America? Is this a possibility? And over the course of me working on this show, of course, we saw many other uh, kind of horrifying events that pointed to this very thing, that demagoguery you know, remains a very potent force in America, that, that anti-Semitism is still alive and well. I'm, of course, thinking of you know the Charlottesville March, the Tree of Life synagogue shooting, and just earlier this year, the attempted insurrection on the Capitol, which has very real echoes in Coughlin's own radical follower movement, which he deemed the Christian front and which also had plotted to, to overthrow the government. So there are very real historic parallels that I hope to kind of expose and illuminate by sort of illustrating this question of, of how we got here and how you know, figures like Father Coughlin do indeed emerge from the woodwork and prey on people's fear and prejudices to, to gain power for themselves. I think this is really, Father Coughlin's story is really a tremendously relevant 
story for the modern day and, and, and may in fact be the story that illuminates what we're all going through right now. Andrew, I've listened to the entire show. It is absolutely riveting. And it's our pleasure now to thank you for being our guest and introduce a snippet from the terrifying, exuberant, and fascinating new podcast, Radioactive. Here it is. Yonder comes Father Coughlin wearing a silver chain. Cast on his stomach and Hitler on the brain. Episode 1. In the beginning. And I'm going to tell you workers for you cash in your checks. They say America first, but they mean America next in Washington. When you step inside the church that Father Coughlin founded, you can barely tell that this priest once held the world in his hands. At the Shrine of the Little Flower, which Detroiters just know as Shrine, Coughlin's portrait still hangs on the wall and some of his belongings are framed behind a glass case in the lobby. The church celebrates him as the first leader of their great flock and tends not to talk about the other stuff. In my day-to-day pastoring, his name comes up very, very rarely. Monsignor Robert McClory was, until recently, the pastor of Shrine. When I first visited him at the church in 2018, he told me he didn't think about its founder all that much. I really hear very little people talking about any of his political engagement. Most of the people here, to the extent that they remember him at all, would be certainly of an older generation. And their comments would be that if he had the school mass, you knew you weren't going to have any classes that morning because he would preach for so long. I mean, you know, those kind of anecdotes. I think, you know, we have a beautiful church that he built. We try and serve the people of God through it. But again, I I really have to say, Andrew, on a day-to-day basis, I haven't, I don't encounter a lot of conversations about him. After a series of anti-Semitic events unfolded across the country in 2018, McClory and Shrine decided to have more conversations about Father Coughlin. We'll get to that in a later episode. But how does the rest of the world remember Father Coughlin? And why, for generations, have Jewish Detroiters called his church the Shrine of the Little Fascist? Father Coughlin was uh, the most infamous uh, radio priest of his day in the 1930s. He had an audience of anywhere from 15 to 20 million listeners throughout most of the 1930s. Thomas Doherty is a historian at Brandeis University. His area of research is American culture, a culture that, in the 1930s, was rapidly changing, or, more accurately, being rapidly changed by a new mass medium, radio. It's uh, the first broadcasting medium of American history, and in a way, it's going to set the pattern for everything else that came afterward, because whether it's television or the Internet today, Radio broadcasting was the first universal simultaneous medium in which you could command an audience of millions of people at the same time. So the sheer specialness of what radio was in the 1930s, and it reaches what media scholars call a level of penetration around 31 and 32. Uh, And that's just a fancy way of saying most people who wanted to listen to radio could listen. They had one in their living room. 
uh, you know, a neighbor down the hall might have, or in, in a lot of famous stories, uh, uh, you could sort of walk down the street when a popular radio show was on, like Amos and Andy in the uh, late 20s, early 1930s, and uh, not miss a second of the episode because the broadcast would be coming out from the windows of every apartment on the street. That sort of sensor arm of uh, noise that we associate with modern life uh, first starts in the 1930s, and Coughlin is one of the people who's there at the ground floor. Increasingly, as you were walking down the streets of America, the sound that came at you from every corner was the voice of Father Charles Coughlin. All your rhymes in the church militants. This America is Christ's America. Why was he so popular? After all, he was a Catholic priest in an overwhelmingly Protestant country. Not really anyone's idea of a celebrity. Father Coughlin, like all good politicians and entertainers, had one thing going for him. He had an impeccable sense of timing. His rise coincided with one of the lowest points in American history, the Great Depression. The richest country in the world began a better journey downhill. Coughlin understood that economic uncertainty gave way to political turmoil, which made people scared. And when people were scared, they desperately sought a calm and reassuring voice. That, says Doherty, is why times of turmoil breed dangerous demagogues. He's speaking to the sense of uh, chaos that people feel towards the, the economic deprivations people feel. And then ultimately, Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Uh, Leo, would you read the first mailbox letter this week? With pleasure. Your interview with Jonathan Lipnicki, the actor and jiu-jitsu warrior, was really interesting. It really struck me how limited portrayal is of all kinds of Jews in the media. I'm not an actor, but I get told I, quote, don't look Jewish, and it is meant as a compliment. Different kinds of portrayals in the media might help stop these comments as people who are not Jewish see that Jews are shock, horror, just people too in all their complexity. Warm regards, Corinne. So, Leo, I just, I just wanted to ask you, like, do you think that's true? Do you think that if Jews were portrayed in all of our, you know, sporty six foot two grandeur, would it change anything in the world? I just, I was intrigued by the premise of the letter. I'm kind of going to go with yeah. So, there's this article that was making the rounds, and I'm sure you saw it. It was shared quite a bit on our Facebook group about the real travesty of Jewish women, female characters on TV, so rarely being portrayed by actual Jewish women, by Jewish actresses. And I think there's something really true about this. I think when, when Jews write Jewish characters or imagine Jewish characters or non-Jews write Jewish characters, it's more often than not either falls into a very particular trope or goes to some, to some like Rachel Brosnahan to portray it. But like we, we really... There really are very few places where you could go to see the kind of intricate kaleidoscope of Jewish diversity and all of its complexity, which I think is, I think it's kind of a shame. And I think a lot of it has to do with Jews sort of relegating themselves into a punchline because it's like, ah, I don't know how people are going to take this. And I love that there's a dude like Lipnicki out. It's like, you know what? Fuck it. Like, I'm a big, burly, ass-kicking Jew and that's what you have to deal with now. I kind of really dig that. I always make the point that the only show I can think of on major American television, American-made show on an American network ever, I think, that just had Jews being neither completely secular nor like totally Haredi and also doing something Jewish, right? And I don't mean like the Wonder Years were once in a blue moon, like Paul had a bar mitzvah, right? But it was a totally trivial part of the arc of the whole show. Paul, a.k.a. Jewy McJustine, played by non-Jew, had an Ashkenormative bar mitzvah. like Non-Jew Josh Saviano. W- which are we going to say? I was going to say it was, was transparent, in which the Pfeffermans, was that their name? They lit Shabbos candles sometimes. They had Passover. They they had a kind of like reform to conservative American, but like medium observant Jewish identity that was not played as a crazy bit of exoticism, nor was it like, oh, they're Jews, but they never, ever go to shul. Like they went to shul, they lit candles, they did stuff, 
but they were also Americans partaking in American life. They were neither Haredi nor totally secular. That is so completely rare. And I always gave the show credit for that. And and one day you, you may even have a Sephardi Jew out there just, just being a normal person on air. Imagine that. Has there ever been a normal, regularly recurring Sephardi character on American-made television? I'm going to go with no. That is one for the J. Crew. Okay, one more letter. Lee writes in about your interview with Jacques Berlinerblau, who, of course, was born Jason, but changed it to Jacques. Jeff Bernstein. Jeff Bernstein, Jacques Berlinerblau. Lee writes, I'd hate to hear what Berlinerblau believes about Nabokov. He can't imagine that Roth might have fantasized about killing his first wife and never acting on it. So he's the thought police. Sounds very Catholic, not Jewish. Lee. Burn. <laughs> Sick burn. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I want to say in the mailbox this week is I was going back through the voicemails and some guy named Randy called me about a month ago and he left his number and I wasn't going to call him back. It was just like, hey, it's Randy. Call me. This is for Mark Oppenheimer. Hey, it's hey, Randy. Hey, it's Randy. <laughs> call me. And he left his number. I did text him though. And I was like, uh, look, I don't know who you are, but you know, what's, what's going on? What do you want from me? Right. But look, Randy, if you're still out there and it was important, I always give my email out on the show. It's just moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. And I, if we need to connect, you know how to connect with me. Start with an email. We'll build up to phone call. Then we'll build up to lunch. And, you know, we'll take it. We'll take it from there. You can reach us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com, whether you're Randy or not. And we're at 914-570-4869. Pianist Simona Dinnerstein recently did the coolest thing. She conducted a walking tour throughout the Greenwood Cemetery, which included performances on several pianos scattered throughout the route. It was a really nifty idea. And before the concert, Liel Leibowitz sat down to talk with her about her music. Have a listen. It is my great pleasure to welcome to Unorthodox one of my absolute favorite musicians. And if I may, I think one of the absolute greatest classical pianists alive today or at any time, Simona Dinnerstein. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So, you know, I've been following your career for a while and world famous concert pianist is, is one of those things that, you know, my mother had very high on her list of things she would like me to do. And it actually sort of surprised me to hear you say in interviews that your parents actually were not at all the kind who really sort of pushed you from the time you were very young to sit and practice for hours and, and become a child prodigy. So here's what I want to know. What's wrong with them? <laughs> Maybe I should ask them that question. They were incredibly supportive and encouraging. It just was that they left me to be very independent in how I worked. I think you started when you were, what, six or seven years old. What, what drew you to this instrument and to the immense discipline it takes to become, you know, who you eventually became? Well, the first thing that happened that made me interested in the piano was that I was taking a ballet class and there was a pianist who played Chopin in class. And that really captivated me. So I asked for piano lessons and we didn't have a piano and my parents thought, I seemed a bit young. So they set up recorder lessons for me instead. So I actually started, <laughs> it was a much more portable instrument, but I think it was actually a great way to start learning music because I studied with a professional Renaissance recorder player. So my introduction to music playing it was through Renaissance music. 
Now, this sounds very charming, but I imagine, I mean, I imagine because it happened to me that at some point, any musically inclined child looks around her and sees like, hey, there are actually people making a really good living by playing, you know, four chords on the guitar in front of <laughs> 30,000 people. Maybe I should just do this and, and be a rock star. What, what kind of makes you gravitate towards the kind of music that you're already understanding is the domain of fewer and fewer people? I think I've been pretty clueless about money from a young age. So that definitely didn't come into the picture in terms of... I think of, having having parents who are artists really helps. Yeah. <laughs> I just fell in love with classical music. There's just something about the music that always felt really meaningful to me and expressive and interesting and vital. To be honest, I haven't really started listening to other kinds of music until like the past 10 years. My son has gotten me into listening to singer-songwriters and some different bands and like even things as bands as iconic as Led Zeppelin, I only discovered through my son. So I've been kind of in this haze of Bach and Schumann <laughs> and my parents' music, which was like 50s rock and roll and Bob Dylan and Joan Baez. So I, I want to nerd out for, for a minute talking about technique because, you know, the Goldberg Variations, Bach, of course, which was, I think it's fair to say, you know, either your signature or among your sort of signature things that you're you're known for. Now, I grew up like like so many others being exposed to that particular piece of music by Glenn Gould, the sort of iconic interpretation. And then I heard you play it. And it was about the most starkly different approach to it, whereas Glenn Gould seemed to me to be playing almost, you know, almost defiance of the piece, kind of like playing it with a rhythm as if you're sort of like climbing a mountain. You seem to be playing with this focused, earnest reverence to it that really sort of sought to emotionally understand the essence of Bach. So when you approach a work so incredibly monumental, where do you even begin? Where do you even begin to connect to this culture, to this sensibility, to the soulfulness that is now, you know, several hundred years in the past? I love Glenn Gould. I think he was also delving into the music in a, just a very different way. And there are probably hundreds of ways that one can digest the Goldberg variations. That process of trying to understand the music, it's hard to describe. I mean, I think that there's a lot of time spent pulling the music apart when I'm working on it. Practicing, for instance, in the Bach, I would practice the separate voices. You know, oftentimes in the Goldberg Variations, there are three different voices at the same time, three different lines. And I'll see how each one is, is working separately and how they're interacting with each other. And figuring out how we can hear that, like what's the best way to shape each line so that you can hear how they're interacting. And then thinking about how do you bring out a character that, you know, the music seems to have, say, a certain kind of lilt in it rhythmically. Would that lilt be shown in this way or that way? There are so many different ways. And so there's quite a lot of experimentation. There's analysis, but there's also instinct at work when you're trying to understand how to play. I work a lot with my instincts as well as analyzing it. So I'll usually try playing the same passage many, many different ways. And at a certain point, only one way feels right. 
And then that might change. So, you know, a few years later, it might be different. It sounds a lot like acting. It's actually a lot like acting. Yeah. So this year, according to God and iTunes, is the world's most popular Jewish podcast. And so I have to ask, because it seems to me that if you've been following classical music for the last 30, 40 years, you kind of see a shift. I mean, this this used to be an area in which you would see a lot of Jewish musicians, conductors, etc. And nowadays you go to the concerts and, and you see mainly or a lot of Asian musicians. Is that a noticeable shift? Is that something that is indicative of Jews losing interest in this art form that we used to be passionate about? Or is that just reading too much into a natural process that's occurring in so many other forms of art? It does seem to me that there's been a big shift in the people studying music and the people performing music and the people listening to music. I'm not sure what accounts for it exactly. You know, maybe there are patterns of emigration that relate to that. I don't know what it is. It's so it's so interesting. I mean, I feel very loath to make generalizations about groups of people. So it's hard to say, why does Juilliard have so many less Eastern European Jewish students than they used to? I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, I think it's a much larger question about social change than I could possibly answer. But I will say an interesting anecdote. A few years ago, I performed in Leipzig, which is, of course, Bach's home. It was a very staid audience, kind of a restrained audience, I would say. And then from there, I went on a tour of South Korea, where I performed the Goldberg Variations in seven different cities. And the concerts were sold out. There were young children at them. Half of each audience seemed to be under the age of 18. And then there were like these massive lines of people that came to talk to me afterwards. And I was just so incredibly struck by the difference in the enthusiasm for the music between the audience in Leipzig and the audience in Seoul, you know? (laughs) So I don't really know what that says, but I think that, you know, there's just a shift in how people listen to music. All this brings us to the incredible concert. You're about to undertake an American mosaic, which is not only a very kind of unique piece of music, but also will be played in a, shall we say, an orthodox setting? Tell us us about (laughs) this unbelievable thing. Yes. Well, um, last spring during the pandemic of 2020, the composer Richard Daniel Poor reached out to me. He said that he had in mind writing a big piece of music for piano, which would be a multi-movement work where he would dedicate each movement to paying tribute to a different part of our society that was affected by the pandemic. Hmm. And he wondered if I would be interested in being the pianist for whom he would write this. And I was very excited to do it. So he composed it and sent it to me in the summer, last summer. And I learned it and recorded it. And the recording came out this year. And what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be performing it at Greenwood Cemetery, which is in Brooklyn and is a few blocks away from where I live. The reason why I'm doing it there is they actually have a very interesting concert series there, which I've long admired, where they have concerts in the crypt in Greenwood. And what I suggested to them was that maybe instead of just playing in the crypt, 
we could have a kind of progressive concert where we walk through the cemetery and there would be various pianos in different locations. And so I'd play a few movements in one place and then we'd walk somewhere else and play a few movements in another place. And that this kind of journey through the cemetery would also convey my own walks that I took in the cemetery during the pandemic because I spent a lot of time walking around Greenwood. Well, I will be there and I can't wait to listen to it. And I am deeply grateful to you for being our guest. Thank you so much, Simona Dinusti. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you. Mazel tovs. Leo, do you have a mazel tov this week? Oh my God, do I have a mazel tov, Mark? I have the mother of all mazel tovs. So one of my absolute favorite places in Israel is in the old Namal, the old port in Tel Aviv. There's a farmer's market there. And in the heart of this charming farmer's market, there's a stand. It is called Sherry Herring. Sherry after Sherryansky, who is the restaurateur who opened it. Herring after our birthright, our delight, our best food ever. And it's a sandwich shop that serves incomparable sandwiches with, you know, anchovies or herring or, you know, sardines and piri piri sauce. Like amazing stuff. Not my foods. Anchovies, herring, sardines, not my foods. This week, they opened an outpost on 72nd Street in Manhattan between West End and Broadway. Valentino, the unimprovably named Valentino, all the way straight out of Tel Aviv, opened an outpost of this place on the Upper West Side. If you want sardines and piri piri sauce or smoked tuna chipotle spread with onions and spicy pepper, like this is the greatest sandwich you will ever have. If you're a Jew who craves smoked fish, by which I mean to say, really, if you're a Jew, it's the absolute best and it gives me great pleasure. Go there. The good news is you'll be able to find it because you'll be able to smell the sartines and anchovies from 80 blocks away. Just get off at Grand Central. Yes, and I'm not even exaggerating. The chances of you running into me there at any given moment is pretty much about 75% at this point because I'm, I'm there like every day now. Well, I don't mean to take it all serious, but my Mazeltovs are to Rabbi's Natalie Louise Shribman and her new husband, Rabbi Ben, who got married today, October 3rd, as we're taping this show. Double rabbi wedding. And we were so sorry that we couldn't make it. They were kind enough to invite us, and it would have been so wonderful to go to that wedding. One more Mazel Tov. Ben Gladstone, your dad wrote in and wants us to give you a shout out on your wedding. We're a week early, but it's coming up, God willing. Your wedding to Razel Berman, who apparently you met at Brown Rizdi Hillel. Your dad also informs us that she is a software engineer at Facebook. And we <laughs> forgive like, her for that. It's the equivalent of like, he's marrying a doctor, but he's, he's marrying a software engineer at Facebook. We are so happy for we you. We wanted him to marry a rabbi, but she's a software <laughs> engineer. It's the same thing. Hey, somebody's got to pay the bills. Um, your dad, Scott Gladstone, is a, a loving dad and a mensch. And um, don't forget him as you got into the married world and you have a family of your own. Go home every once in a while for a round of golf with Scott for some Scrabble or, uh, you know, a cappuccino with your dad because, uh, you know, he brought you into this world and he can take you out. (laughs) 
Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Subscribe to our newsletter or send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. We often come to you live to book us or advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross, that's Cross with a K, jcross at tabletmag.com. You can buy our swag at bit.ly slash unortho shirt. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter or join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia, who just got his first ever grown-up apartment all by himself. So he needs Ikea furniture. He needs fake plants. He needs a subscription to many meal services. And I think you guys at JCrew are the people to give it to him. Artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music by Golem. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Our Zoom master is Degani Stein Rubin. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Mona Alfi of Congregation B'nai Israel in Sacramento. And we come to you in the scattered home layers of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. I do always, with the thing with the double rabbi weddings is, you know, they, I think they met at Hebrew Union College. And when you start HUC or JTS or one of these seminaries unattached, you really hope you're going to meet your spouse there because otherwise, you know, when you go out into rabbi world, I, I just, I just know that dating is hard as a rabbi. Hold on. Really though? Because then it strikes me like, so one of you is getting some kind of pulpit job and then what's the other one doing? I actually think that if you're a rabbi, you're better off marrying a non-rabbi, no? I think you are. I just think that if you get smicha, if you get ordained and go out into the world as a rabbi, all of a sudden then it's really hard to go on J-Date in within a hundred miles of where your pulpit is. Because first of all, everyone who would date you is someone you actually want to bring into your shul as a member. But aren't you more attractive? Because are you more or less attractive if you're a rabbi? I think it's kind of hot. Well, I think it's kind of hot. I mean, right? I, absolutely. I mean, You're like, Ooh, no, Rabbi, no question. <laughs> but you and I, I mean, you and I are are a particular and a specific sample size. Are very sick individual. Plus, look, two two rabbis. Just hold on. I I, I, I want to linger on this for a second. Two rabbis, by definition, like every argument that they have is sort of a <laughs> you know, like a Talmudic disquisition. It's like. I think the sink is clogged because you did not take the strainer. Well, no, I don't believe that's the case. As Rabbi Asi said to Rabbi Ami, like, that strikes me as a recipe for disaster. You used that nigun for Lakato D. What, what, are, what oh. is wrong with you? I think this is really interesting. I mean, I know the Ben Stiller theory on this. He's Rabbi, very sexy in the great movie Keeping the Faith. There have to be a million stories. You know what? If there's a rabbi out there who wants to share with us anonymously, we'll figure out a way to do it anonymously. I would love to do an interview or get some correspondence going with a rabbi who's tried to date, who's gone out into a new community as the rabbi, as the single rabbi. And like, how how do you, I mean, Protestant clergy weigh in as well. Write to us, unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. And rabbis... Whoever you are, gay, straight, male, female, reform, conservative, reconstructionist, or orthodox, we think you're all sexy AF. As they say in the Talmud. As, was that Hillel or Shammai? Shammai. That was Rachel Lakeach. Lakeach.